Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 9th, we are studying Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, with some final background information on the tribes that are left in the land and the Lord's purpose in leaving them there. We are now prepared to meet the first judge, the one who is raised up by the Lord. His name is Othniel, son of Kenaz. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Tyrell Bramwell. Pastor Bramwell serves at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California. Pastor Bramwell? Welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you as a guest today. We are in Judges chapter three, starting to get to what I think you could call the main event of the book of Judges. We're going to dip our toes into that section of Judges that I think most people think about when they hear about this book, where the judge is actually raised up to deliver the people. We have a little bit of background information before we get to that. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, Pastor Bramwell. What context, whether from the book of Judges itself or the larger narrative of Israel's history in the Old Testament, what do we need to know going into this text? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in ch- in chapter two, we do get um, that context a little bit, sort of a sort of a summary of it as we uh, look at that and, and Joshua's death. As we're shifting from Joshua to the judges to these future leaders, these these uh, you know his his successors, we're starting to see this this shift. And so, what I find to be very helpful in understanding what's happening in Judges is to look at the end of Joshua's life. Um, Joshua 24 is what gives us that. We, we get the, that in uh, Judges 2, uh, starting there at uh, verse 6. Um, but we get a fuller version of that in Joshua 24. So if you don't mind, I can just go ahead and read that for the listeners. And uh, give us that context. I'm going to just, the whole chapter of 24 is great, but let's just start at verse 14, just for the sake of time and, and being succinct. But this will give us a good view of, of the context we need. And, and as we're doing this, we're understanding you know, the, you know, judges. The book of Judges deals with faithfulness to God and that waywardness, that, that that sort of back and forth that we're always seeing, and that we as as God's people still to this day are wrestling with uh, individually as well. So, um, Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, and this is a familiar verse, I'm sure, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, answering Joshua, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed, through whom they passed, all these other people groups. Israel's not, you know, they're not unused to living around other people groups and other gods. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, therefore, We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. 
and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And it continues on and tells us about Joshua's death and uh, the elders and the generation there. And that's what's sort of re, uh, recaptured for us in, in Judges 2. And that provides that context that we're dealing with now as we get into three and we see this remaining, these remaining peoples and the first judge, Othniel, right, being raised up. It, it's quite striking to to hear there in Judges 24 the faithfulness of the people, the promise that they make there to the Lord before Joshua, and to see how quickly they fall away from it. <laughs> And I think I think that context is going to help us today, particularly as we get to this matter of the Lord wanting his people to experience war and to experience mm. trial. And that experience that that generation had that proved to be a, a testing ground for them that ended up strengthening their faith, that's going to be, I think, as we'll see, the Lord's desire for this new generation and the generations following Joshua afterwards that they too might eventually, Lord willing, make a promise like that in that same situation. Now, and we're going to see, as you said, faithfulness and waywardness, and the waywardness tends to dominate the book of Judges. Mm-hmm. But we have that similar idea of a, a test that's coming in this text today. And I think that that context there in Judge Joshua 24 is very helpful as we jump into this text today. So Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and they served their own, sorry, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." All right, that's Judges 3, verses 1 through 6. We'll, we'll break there before we start talking more about Othniel as the text continues. And even here, there's a bit of overlap, I think, between those two sections. That's where mm-hmm. the ESV puts the break. But, but there's a bit of a, a shift already in this text. So the, the text here starts by describing the nations that the Lord left and then his reasoning for leaving these nations in place. So let's talk about those two in turn, Pastor Bramwell. What what are these nations? Who are these nations that the Lord is leaving there? Yeah, these uh, these goy, right? These goyim, the nations, the uh, the people beyond Israel, the other people, God's not God's chosen people. Sort of understanding here. Um, you might be familiar. People listening might be familiar with that idea of of the uh, the ethne, the the Gentile, or the Greek in the New Testament, right? The Jew and the Greek. We're dealing with people who are not part of God's covenant people, those who are serving other gods, false gods, uh, the the wicked people of the world who are, are openly rejecting Yahweh, uh, openly rejecting uh, what God would have them do, and who are serving these other deities that they've made for themselves. So there's the the and we we've, we've got that list there. We may yeah. may look at some of those. We we know we recognize some of them. The Philistines tend to stand out as one we know well because we know David and Goliath usually from Sunday school. And we recognize some of the other names as well. But but these are all nations currently living in the promised land who as you said are defined by the fact that they worship idols. They do not worship the true God. Now, this text is very clear that the Lord is going to leave them there. He had originally commanded his people to drive them out completely, not to leave anyone there, but to drive them out completely. We've seen in previous chapters here in Judges how they did not do that for whatever reason, whether it was just utter faithlessness or some other excuse, they didn't do that. And so at this point now, the Lord's saying, okay, I'm going to leave them there. And it seems there's a, a dual purpose in his leaving these nations there. The first one, and I think at least in my mind, this is the more surprising of the two, 
is that he wants to teach his people war, he, or he wants them to know war. He wants them to experience war. And, and in my mind, that's a bit striking. Well, that's just not generally the way I tend to think of the <laughs> Lord. And, and that, of course, could just be a problem with my own thinking. It's also in a bit of contrast from when the people come out of Egypt. Right initially, when they come out of Egypt, he purposely leads them away from nations that might lead them to war. He, he takes them toward the Red Sea on a path so they won't fight right away. Now it seems, well, I mean, it's very clear. He does want them to experience war. So, Pastor Bramwell, what, what's going on with this? Yeah, this language is striking to us. Um, I think post Christ's crucifixion and this peace that we have in the Lord. And, you know, in church on a regular basis, we hear this language of, of uh, peacefulness and rest and comfort and things that are not warlike. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that idea of teach them war kind of hits our ears with a bit of shock. Like what is going on? And rightfully so. So let's dig into it a little bit here. Uh, as we're, as we're learning about why he wants to teach them war, this testing, uh, that he's going to do for them, noticing that it's it's easy to make that that confession that we heard Israel making at the end of Joshua in chapter twenty four, right? It's it's easy in times of peace to be able to say, you know, we're going to believe this way, we're going to do that thing, uh, we're gonna we're gonna serve the Lord, and we're going to be His people. But when we actually are in the thick of things. When you're actually out there and things are rough and the waters are, are, are rough and, and the storm is hitting you, will you still confess what you said you would confess? And this is the whole dialogue between Joshua and the people uh, there in 24, to teach them war. As we see with what he did in Egypt and all the mighty works during Moses' life um, and all the, all the different warfare they experienced as they were coming into their land, as we see with Joshua and Caleb and, and, and these sorts of things, what we're hearing and what we're seeing for Israel is, will they rely on God to war for them? Uh, this, isn't, this isn't necessarily, and maybe we need to make this distinction as modern uh, you know, Christians who are familiar with you know, modern warfare techniques and things like that. You know, there's video games all around us with our children playing Call of Duty, and they, you know, we're, we're, we're very familiar with warfare as an art form, so to speak. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not, God's not going to teach them the techniques of war per se. What he's teaching them is to rely on him to be their warrior, to be their, uh, their, uh, their rock, to be the guy who is, is defending them and battling for them. And we're going to see this in, in, in physical war. There, is, of course, is this spiritual or physical warfare tech, um, aspect to this. But as I was just kind of stumbling there, it's about spiritual warfare. It's about the reality that God's people are always going to live in a world surrounded by those who don't believe as we do, as we do now, as we see is, you know, is the case still to this day. We are surrounded by people who don't believe in the Lord. And so there is constant um, warfare happening. We are always at war against the rulers and authorities of this world, the powers and principalities. Um, and so the idea of teaching them war is teaching them how to remain faithful in unpleasant times when there is uh, affliction and attack coming from all sides. Hmm. Yeah, th this is, the, I think, the distinction that you made there concerning the techniques of warfare, and that that's not what is on the Lord's mind. And in right. fact, there are places in the scriptures where we see, you know, the swords being beaten into plowshares, for example. It, it's not about learning how to fight with a sword or how to properly string a, a bow so that you can draw the arrow and, and fire it with precise aim. That's not what the Lord is, is teaching here. Rather, he is, he is teaching this matter of, will you trust in me mm -hmm. in the war? And, and as we, I mean, I'm thinking ahead now in the book of Judges, but so often when the Lord raises up a judge and he provides for a military victory for his people, the the war tactics that get employed are far from 
orthodox <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, when you think about military history and and how you would position your troops and what weapons you want at your disposal. I mean, the Lord, the Lord has no use for that. He he doesn't he does not make use of that. Rather, he he makes use of tiny armies with with jars and torches in one case. He, right. he makes use of a of a woman who's got a tent peg and a hammer in another. I mean, over you know, he, he makes use of, of Samson, perhaps the, the most famous judge. He makes use of a of a blind man between two pillars who's chained up. And this is how the Lord then fights for his people. But this is the whole point, is that the Lord is doing the fighting for his people. Are you going to trust in him or or will you look to the gods around you? And this is the constant dilemma that the people of Israel are going to find themselves in, in the book of Judges. And, and in that way, then it's a it's a test. And that's the other, mm-hmm. the other key word here that you've already started to touch on for us, Pastor, Pastor Bramwell, is the, the matter of a test. So this being placed into this situation of war, oh man, and I've already skipped over like the whole, the whole spiritual warfare too, because that's a, that's a big point right. too. But, but I mean, in this matter of war and the spiritual warfare, it becomes a test then. Where, where will you place your faith? Will you place it in the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, or will you look to whatever God happens to be around you and maybe he's providing a pretty good crop for those folks over there, your neighbors? Which will it be? That seems to be the test. Yeah. And it seems that when we're, you know, as we have that perspective, right, um, it's it's very tempting, alluring to say, well, if I serve that other God who is providing well for these people, there will be peace. I won't be in conflict with them, right? So it's a false sense of peace that we're involved in this test as well, uh, that, that trying to to push our, um, as you as you pointed out, Isaiah's um, famous lines about you know smashing swords into plowshares. Uh, will we try to force that and do it ourselves? Right, uh, bring it about before it, it's the Lord's will. Or, and, and the ob, the obverse of that is true too. There will be complete peace. There will be complete peace when everyone is believing in Yahweh. You know, if we were all God's people, if people were not rejecting Him. And going about things their own way, there would be peace. Uh, and when we try to to serve the Baals and the Asheroth, we we think we're pursuing peace. We think we're trying to keep peace in the family. Maybe uh, listeners can understand that in today's context, right? We have families in our world today that are not of the same faith, and we think we're keeping peace by not bringing God into the into the conversation around the table or whatever it may be. Uh, but we're, it's a false sense of peace. It's not true peace. Um, but with with Yahweh, with the Lord, uh, how will you be? And the spiritual and the physical, th- those warfares are always connected. As we know, we are both body and soul. And uh, on the on the last day, our bodies will be resurrected. You know, we have this physical sense to all warfare. All spiritual warfare has a physical element to it. Um, in in our days, day and age, as Christians, we may not understand that so well because you know we don't hear language in Scripture that's telling us. You know, wherever we're at, you know, St. Mark's Ferndale, that I'm supposed to be, you know, physically battling with my unbelieving neighbors in that sense. So it might sound strange to my ears, but rest assured, the physical and the spiritual warfare are connected. Uh, And that's where the persecution comes in. That's where suffering, the cross that we bear as Christians today comes in. Uh, and, And you're right. That test is, will you serve Yahweh? Or actually, as we should see, as we will see, Will you be served by Yahweh or will you serve Baal or the false God? Fill in the blank. Right. Lots of good stuff there, Pastor Bramwell. The the connection between physical and spiritual warfare, I think, is something that we do tend to forget today. And, and maybe it is because we live in relative physical peace, at least in our American context. Right. But I think you're, you're very right to tie it to the matter of suffering and persecution. As you were, as you were talking about the division within family, my mind was going to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, where he, and he talks, I mean, very similar to the way you were speaking, which I suppose always good when we talk like Jesus, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, he, you know, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And, and what he does is that he, by coming, he reveals that division that is already there. And when we try to find a peace outside of him, it does end up being a false peace. So the people of Israel in the time of Judges chapter three, 
they could look for a physical peace with their neighbors, with the Philistines and Canaanites and Sidonians and so forth. But if they if they made that peace with them, it would be a false peace because they're serving or being served by two different gods, two totally different religions. On the one hand, you've got the Lord, you've got Yahweh, who is there not for his people to serve him, but for him to serve them. And on the other hand, you've got all these false gods, completely different religions, cruel gods who who say you serve me or else and and enact all kinds of you know human sacrifice and all sorts of uh, fornication within their their religious rites, all kinds of just awful things to totally different religions. Is there peace between those? Well, the reality is is no. There's not. And that I think is, is hard for us to hear today, again, in that idea of relative peace. Mm-hmm. But when we do make that connection between the physical and spiritual warfare that's happening, I think we, we see it a lot more clearly. And so texts like this, and we see this throughout the book of Judges and in other places in the Old Testament, where we're forced to grapple with it, I think are, are a healthy reminder for us in, in our context that, that this battle that's happening between between our Lord and and all the forces of evil is constantly going on and, and and our part in it is to remain faithful to the Lord. I mean, I think it's just a it's a healthy reminder for us in our context today when maybe we get lulled into a bit of a sleep. Uh, mm-hmm. Rise my soul to watch and pray. Well, sometimes I think we we tend to fall asleep in our context. Absolutely. And as you as you were uh quoting Matthew 10, I was thinking of Matthew 6, where the Lord says, you know, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This idea that we can, uh, we on our own can keep peace. It, it basically is this rejection of who do we serve, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the other, another thing, and just to, I mean, uh, we're, we're kind of, that's okay. We're tra- chasing some <laughs> rabbits. This is good. You know, you're, you're talking about the the vows that get made or the promise that gets made by the people there in Joshua 24. They've known the war in the conquest. Now the Lord's going to use war again to teach them faithfulness in that crucible of faith is is the way I've heard others put it. So, you know, I I mean, my mind gets drawn to the confirmation vows that we make. Mm -hmm. And that last one particularly where we, we promise to suffer all, even death, rather than give up this confession of Christ for us. And and every time I I go through the rite of confirmation, particularly with a young person, although it's it's true for for those who are confirmed as an adult as well, but particularly with an, an eighth grader who who has very little idea, I think, of of what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. You know, you, you make that promise then like, do you do you really know what you're promising and what that could entail for you? And I, I do my best as a pastor, you know, to to impress it upon him, but I don't ever know if it really makes a, a full difference. Even as much as, you know, do I even know what it really means to suffer? But I, I just the, the point I want to drive is that we make that promise at that moment when maybe it seems like we don't need it. So that at the moment when we do need it, when we are in that moment of warfare, that promise is there for us to go back to that. Yes, I did make that promise. And more importantly, the Lord has made his promise to me that he is my God. I am his child. And, and so he will do the fighting for me in this moment of war. Yeah, that's and that's really crucial to point out because there's the law gospel uh, differentiation there of what we, according to our vow, want to strive to do but always recognizing that we fail at that and we, we can fail gravely at that. And at that point, it is, is a wonderful sense of comfort to know that he doesn't, right? That I may forget him, and as we'll get that forget language in here, uh, in this text, I may forget the Lord, the God of my salvation, but he will never forget me. And then he will call to my rem- rem- remembering. He will call to me that he is faithful. He will reveal to me what he has done, his mighty works in the past. And for us post-crucifixion you know, Christians here, uh, the mighty works that we look to is you know, the cross, the cross, the miracle of life that the Lord has given us. And there, there we see the Lord who will never forget us. I love that. Thanks, mm-hmm. sir. I, God bless you for doing that with your confirmands. May all pastors be like that. 
Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I tell them and I, I do it for my own sake too, just so that I remember, right. I don't want them to make a promise that they don't know what they're saying. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, and, and I think how, how important for all of us as, as confirmed Christians that we would look back on those vows or, or as, you know, to speak to pastors more particularly, look back on our ordination vows. What is it that we've promised mm-hmm. so that, so that we would, you know, stay true to that rather than just, you know, falling to sleep and not recognizing this this warfare that we are involved in, and it is not ultimately with flesh and blood, but it is with the principalities and rulers and and all those evil things that Saint Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six, a, a, a reminder of that, and and how important it is for us to keep our wits about us, and and not not so that we can do the fighting, and I, I think this is what we we should leave it with on this side of the break, and not so sure. that we can do the fighting, but so that we know that the Lord is the one who fights for us. This isn't about our tactics, but it is about the Lord's faithfulness to deliver his people, to do the battle for them. And we get to sit and watch in faith and receive that victory that he's won for us in Christ Jesus. So with that, Pastor Bramwell, we're going to take a short break here on Sharper Iron on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 9th, and we are studying Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor Tyrell Bramwell. He serves at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California. Pastor Bramwell, prior to the break, we, we looked at the idea of the Lord leaving these nations here to test Israel through this matter of warfare, that they would learn to trust in him to do the fighting for them rather than trusting in their own ability or strength, and that they would look to him rather than to these false gods. So there's the, the setup. You've got the Lord leaving these nations for the purpose of showing his people what war looks like. The test is laid before them. And then verses five through seven, well, the way the way you lay it out in your, your notes for me is that they they it's a report card of sorts. So how do they measure up with this test? Well, uh, in short, they fail. <laughs> they fail miserably. Uh, but we see in the details here that they fail in a certain way, um, a certain rhythm of life. And I think it's a repeatable one that we can actually learn from and we can see even happening in our own daily lives and among those we love and care about. And this is this is the danger we have and we should be aware of in our own spiritual battle as we try to you know, keep our guards up and to treasure that good deposit that's been given to us and what all of that kind of language means. So here we have Israel and, and they're living among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all these peoples with their false gods. And we hear that their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. So we see a sort of a, if you're, if you're a school teacher and you know, you're now you're having that pa- that uh, parent teacher conference and you're trying to explain to the parents why, uh, why Johnny failed uh, the quarter, right? Why he didn't get through what he was supposed to get through. Here's her explanation. Here's the teacher's explanation. Well, you see, he, he wasn't doing the right work. So he, he was living among bad examples and bad influences. His, him and his friends all together were not doing the right thing. And then, you know, they took for themselves wives. And so we see that progression. Not only are they dwelling among the false people, but uh, the false gods and, the, and their people, but now they're intermarrying into those, those false religions and those false worldviews. And then that then re- leads to the ultimate, you know, F on the report card, the ultimate fail is they served their gods. They started being those people living in that failure, which we get a sort of a, a repeat of that or, or uh, to really drive that home in verse seven, we, which we, we kind of broke, you know, in between one and six and then seven to 11. But as we shift there, uh, we get a, a 
repetition of that failure. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we've already heard what was evil. They ended up serving the other gods, but so that we don't forget what that is. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Uh, total failure. So we got the, the progression of that failure and then what that ultimate failure was, serving false gods and forgetting forgetting Yahweh. There's another aspect to that, the, the forgetting of the true God as well. Hmm. Right. I mean, it, it's amazing. And this is going to be true throughout the book of Judges, how the the focus is on this matter of idolatry mm-hmm. and the worship of false gods. We're going to hear that phrase there from verse seven, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to hear that several times, particularly in the first part of the book of Judges, where you get this cycle of one judge after another. And and every time we need to have, I think this is a, a primary text to keep in mind as that pattern that this matter of doing evil in the sight of the Lord is not simply a matter of immoral living. That's plenty bad. Immoral living, the breaking of commandments four through 10, the failure to love our neighbor as ourselves, that's bad. And it's very, I mean, it's sinful. We should not do that. But when we think about what does it mean to do evil in the sight of the Lord, this is what it's driving home to, is that this is a matter of idolatry, of forsaking the true God for some idol. And and I'm reminded of of the the catechism, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, where we're talking about, you know, lead us not to temptation. And the way Luther structures that there is just, it's always struck me that we would pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us. And what are the first things? Into false belief, despair, and then other great shame and vice. It is this matter of false belief that the devil and the world and our own sinful nature are constantly driving toward. Here, here I think, and, and this is this is worth some time talking about, Pastor Bramo, the way that it comes about is, is, is what we need to pay attention to, lest we would fall into that same thing. Mm-hmm. So they're living among all of these pagans, which, okay, I mean, the Lord is the one who left these nations for them at this point. So they're, that's kind of inescapable at this point, that they're going to be living among these non-Christians. It's the next step where they really start to get in trouble, where they start to intermarry with these non-Christians that then leads into the idolatry. So, Pastor Bramwell, I, I think what we can reflect on here is, well, what is what does it mean for Christians to live faithfully in a world where we're surrounded by non-Christians? Yeah, the the idea of that, the answer is to not forget Yahweh, right? to serve the Lord, to be Christians, to be faithful, to be in his word, to remember his, his covenant with us, uh, to remember what he did for us, to, you know, to study the Old Testament, to be looking at judges, to see how gracious and, and uh, wonderful our, our Lord is, that he doesn't forsake us or forget us, um, and to be always reminded of that, and to be reminded of, of Christ and the gospel, as we've we talked about before the break. We are, uh, and especially in America, I can't speak to other parts of the world, but you know, America is known for being this this um, b- this mixture of all these different people groups, and it is a, it's a blessing in many ways, right? No one would deny that. We're stronger for that in in the world in many ways, but there is a danger, uh, and no matter where you live, for the Christian, there is a danger of bringing in these outside influences, these these other gods. Uh, and in our context, our cultural context today, it could be even a non-God, right? It could be just be the rejection of, of God and uh, the, the worship of self, the worship of my way, not your way, um, resisting religion and being spiritual or, or being nothing at all. At all. This, is that, um, this is the test, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, the Lord has left them for Israel to deal with. That is the test. Um, they're not going away. They're going to have to figure out how to uh, to live. Uh, we might want to drop that word. Figure out how to coexist, if that's possible, with with these other people groups. How is it going to get done? Uh, it's it's definitely not done by uh, embracing their their worldview and then eventually serving their gods and doing what they do. You know, we're we're always up against this. And I like to when I, when I was reading this in preparation for the show, I, it's just my mind, I suppose. I was. I was hearing 
worship language all through this. And we get that with the serving of other gods. That's what worship is, is, is it, uh, you know, the divine service. We're served by the divine, uh, but worship is service. It's serving a master. As we talked about before, you can't serve two masters. And we call the Lord, Lord. We call him master. You know, we are slaves to our God. We are servants to our God. Which God will we be servants to? Or as we will get in the New Testament, the language of, will we be servants to sin, slaves to sin, or will we, will we be slaves to Christ? Now, this language. And that's what we always have to be re- reminding ourselves of. And that's why we go to, to church every Sunday, right? So we can hear those words into our ears, uh, the language of, of the gospel and, and the law, what, what, you know, what we're up against and what the Lord has done for us as our judge, as our, our uh, warrior, as we then can be served by him and resist the temptation to, uh, to coexist in a negative way with, with the world. Hmm. Right. I, the, the, that coexist is a pretty loaded term, I think in our context. So, but, but the, no, you're right. I mean, we're going, we're going to live in the world. This is the reality. Jesus even acknowledges this in his high priestly prayer. He says, father, I'm not asking you that you're going to take them out of the world yeah. when he prays for his disciples, right? He knows his disciples are going to remain in the world, but he prays that his father would keep them in his name while they live in the world. And I mean, that, that is that is the challenge for us as Christians. And I, I do think, to, to reflect a bit more on that idea of the warfare that we talked about on the other side, that, that we're seeing the physical war that's connected is a very stark reminder of the real danger that's there so that we don't get lulled to sleep. Because it is very easy to think that there's some sort of neutral ground, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in, in our American context. And, and the reality is, is there's not. You're, you're either being taught by the world or you're being taught by Christ. And, yep. and there's, there's, no, there's no neutral ground. The way that, the way that I, I like to explain it, and, and I know with, with the whole pandemic, sports aren't as on the forefront of everyone's mind, but I live, I live just about less than an hour away from Austin, where the University of Texas is. And, and that's the, the University of Texas, those are the Longhorns, and their arch rivals, at, at least they used to be, I think they still are, are the Texas A&M Aggies on the other side of us, about an hour and 15 minutes away. And, and so imagine, imagine that you are a fan of the Aggies, but you're trying to live and raise a family in Austin, Texas, right on the doorstep of the University of Texas. <laughs> well, if you want your children to be Aggie fans, you have to actively teach them to be Aggie fans if you're going to live in Austin. Because if you live in Austin and you don't actively teach them something else, they will learn to be Longhorn fans. And you can you can do this with any Anything. number of rivalries, yeah. right? Yeah. But but I think I, I think that's a, a good illustration of, of what we're talking about here. The people of Israel are living in enemy territory. And if they are not active in remaining in the Lord's word, in that divine service of receiving his gifts, if they are not active in giving that to their children, what's going to happen? They're going to become worshipers of false gods. There's no neutral ground. And in that sense, the recognition, just the very open recognition that they're living in enemy territory, I think, I mean, that that's the test, but it, it, you at least know the battleground. Yep. You're not wondering. And I think that's a I don't want to call it an advantage because there's certainly suffering and persecution that that is difficult, but at least you know who you're fighting right then. And that's what we've kind of forgotten, I think, in our culture. Um, you, you mentioned advantage. We we do have sort of the uh, you know the battle plan right in front of us. We know what we're dealing with. We know what the landscape looks like. I think far too often in our culture, we're just sort of burying our hands and heads in the sand and pretending like we don't know. Like, like we don't know how to combat this. No, we do. We know clearly how to combat this. It's what you just said, catechesis. It's being in the word. It's hearing the word. It's it's knowing and and teaching our children the truth. As you were talking, I was thinking about Revelation two because we you know, we we get this. This just doesn't go away with the you know with the end of Judges. The, what we're getting in Judges, we we see throughout the New Testament, and we experience in our own daily lives. But perhaps it's it's beneficial to look in Revelation. Re- Revelation two. Uh, you know, we, we get the letters to the churches. We hear there, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be, and this is, this is really useful language, tested. 
and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, the one who you know, fights against the, the, the goyim, the ethne, that resists the false gods, he will not be hurt by the second death. Again, we, we see the, the very next letter. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Church, Christians, I know you're living where Satan has set up his throne. Yet you hold fast. My name and, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, he says there in Revelation, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, church. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak. It's going to be familiar language as you get through Judges. To put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. As you mentioned in the kind of talking about this, this church, the, the false peoples here, these, these heathen peoples had all kinds of you know, horrible religious practices, much of which involved sexual immorality. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. See, we, we see judges in Revelation, and we see judges even in our own context. We know the battle. We know how to pass the test. It's to rely on Christ. It's to rely on God to be our judge, our deliverer, our savior. Yeah, that, that language of conquering that shows up throughout those letters to the churches is certainly, I mean, they're, they're, we don't maybe catch this in the book of Revelation, but that's a, that's a warfare word. Uh-huh. And that, that word is used in other places in the scriptures as well. The, the ones that come to mind most readily are at the end of Romans 8, we are more than conquerors or mm. victors through him who loved us. But then, well, how is that? It's in the one who loved us. Or, or in First John five, where where Saint John talks about what is our victory? Well, the, the victory, the conquering, it's our faith. We receive this, which I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That this this learning war isn't about the tactics for ourselves, but learning to trust the one who fights for us, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, who has won the victory, and and will deliver it fully to us on the last day. So, I mean, th- this is what it looks like for us as as well today. And our own conquering is to, to trust in the one who has conquered for us. And, and that's what the Lord was teaching his people in the book of Judges. So, Pastor, Pastor Bramwell, we got about 10 minutes left here on the morning. I want to make sure that we spend some time for, for Othniel here. He oh, is yeah. the, the <laughs> first, I mean, this has been a great conversation, but we, we want to look at Othniel. He's the first judge, per se, in, in the most official use of that word. This is called the book of Judges. And Othniel is one of the, he's the first one. Sometimes he gets skipped over because you don't get as many details about what he does or who he fights, but you get enough to set the pattern for the book of Judges that we will see repeated time and time again. So let's read the rest of our text. Judges 3, verses 7 through 11 now. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, and the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That is the rest of the text. So again, we've got like nine minutes, Pastor Bramwell, to, to look at this. Sure. And so, there, I mean, the high points, though, I think are pretty easy to pick out. We, we've talked about how the people of Israel fell into the idolatry. They were actually serving the Baals, the Ashroth. And so the Lord responds exactly how he told them he would. He responds with his anger, and he sells them into the hand of his of an enemy of theirs. This time it's Cushan Rishathaim, which is, I kept saying it, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it reasonably well, but his name is important. Tell us a little about his name. Yeah, Rishathaim. Um, and I think you said it better than 
than I could. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go off your lead there because I think you did great. Uh, doubly wicked, right? right? That's it, that's what his name means. Doubly wicked, uh, the Rishathaim, and it's interesting because you know, Israel has already succumbed to wickedness, right? Um, and they have served the false gods. As I read this, as I'm looking at this, you know, Israel is now serving false gods, doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and so they are uh, already acting as slaves of the false gods. And so the one true God sells them. Yeah, this is slave language, right? He sells them into the hand of, of one who is wicked, but not just one who is wicked, one who is doubly wicked, right? If you're going to be wicked, well, here you go. You have a, you have a, a master who's doubly wicked over you. Um, so twice as evil is kind of the idea there. And it's interesting to note that he's, you know, the king of Mesopotamia or, uh, you know, the king of, uh, the land between the two rivers, the, the king of the area where Abraham came from, right? Uh, beyond the river. And we, we, we heard that in the language at the end of Joshua 24, beyond the river, that area that's outside of the promised land. Right. So, so here you've got the Lord. He's, and I love all the connections you made there, selling them into, he's basically giving them, okay, you want to serve this mm-hmm. evil? Here's what it's going to look like. And it's actually going to be doubly evil of what you think. Cushion Rishathayim, he oppresses the people of Israel. They serve him for eight years. And then step two of this cycle, the people repent. They cry out to the Lord. And now the Lord is going to deliver them, but he's going to deliver them through a deliverer. In this case, it's going to be Othniel. Just take us into that second step of this cycle. Yeah. with And that with that deliverer language, I really, let's just get right to the the core of it. This is savior language. Uh, in fact, you could translate that word deliverer as savior. And what does the savior of the people do? He saves them. So we have here a type of Christ. You know, we have a model uh, that is that is very much what we're going to see with Christ. And the people are are suffering under evil, under wickedness. They they cry out to the to the Lord in this this sort of corporate prayer. They they raise their voice to the Lord together, assembled together as a as a church, and they say, "Save us, help us." And the the Lord raises up this, this deliverer. And I love that language too, that resurrection raised up language. He brings one up, up upon the scene who will, who will step in and who will deliver, who will redeem, who will save the people. And, and in that action, you know, he is called that he is the, the savior of the people, bringing them out of the hands of the doubly wicked one out of the hands of extreme evil and giving them rest, right? Giving them the peace that they'll see for 40 years uh, 40 years until they forget how good God is <laughs> and they got to repeat the cycle again. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And the, and the thing, so this first deliverer, this first judge is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, and that's Caleb's younger brother. And and we we met Othniel briefly in the book of Judges. In chapter one, he gets mentioned briefly during the conquest. Now, it he's connected to that faithful generation with this connection to Caleb, who was among that faithful generation of Joshua. So I think, I mean, that that's an important thing to notice. Oh, right. But it's not simply the matter of the connection to the faithful generation that equips Othniel to be the judge. Rather, you get, and this is another key term in the book of Judges, or another key phrase in the book of Judges, that the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, mm-hmm. and that's how he does these mighty works. We're going to hear that phrase multiple times. Why is why is that important in the book of Judges? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for bringing us back to his name. As you were saying his name, it reminded me you know, that his name means my strength is God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, what he does as the deliverer is only by the the power, the abilities of God, the spirit of the Lord being upon him. Here we're being taught what we learn from the rest of scripture, that we we can't do anything apart from God. If it was just Othniel, just a guy, just a, a regular Israelite, you know, he, he wouldn't have the ability to do this. This is, this is the Lord doing this. He enables him to do what he does. He uses him as a means to bring about the grace that he likes to give to his people. The Holy Spirit is upon us too, right? Well, it's he's given us, in baptism, that's where we receive the Spirit, and He dwells upon us, and and only by that Spirit are we then able to do any good that we do. Uh, only by by that Spirit that rests on us are we able to resist evil, to repent of evil, and to trust in the Lord. Um, that to trust in Him and His fighting way, His warring way against the evil one, to bring us into our our time of peace, which is ultimate, right? Which is not. Ultimately, with Christ, our time of peace is not a 40-year generational thing. It is a life 
It is a lifetime, of course, but a lifetime without end, uh, without um, without death at the end of it. Hmm. Right. So, I mean, I think uh, th- just to the rest then that comes at the end of this cycle. So, I mean, I, I think you could, let's see, four part, the rebellion, the the retribution or the the recompense that the Lord gives, the rescue, and then the rest. That's the, the mm. four part cycle of the book of Judges. And and that rest then, I, I think what's what's unique about that rest is that's a at least as the judge is experienced here in the book of Judges, is a rest that foreshadows the final rest that you're talking about mm-hmm. there. Because on, on the one hand, you know, there's there's a sense of of rest even in the warfare, knowing that it's not I'm not the one that's fighting, but the Lord is fighting for me. You know, be still and know that I am God. That same language from Psalm 46 is used yeah. in the in Exodus as well. That even in the midst of warfare, I I have this rest because I know the Lord is fighting for me. And yet we're always looking forward to that final rest, which is at this the end of this cycle here, where there is no warfare to be feared whatsoever. And I simply rest in the presence of the Lord and all of his gifts without any threat of danger around whatsoever. Uh, Pastor Brown, we've got about two minutes here for any final reflections and tying this all together for us in Christ. Just, well, to repeat what you just said with that uh, cycle, and as I mentioned before, reading this, I can't help but see that this is what the Christian goes through every day of our life, um, and this is what why church is so important and why being served by the one true God is so important, that we don't forget him. And, and and even inadvertently be drawn into serving the Baals and the Asheroth of our day and in our time. And what we do is we come to church every Sunday and we we begin with that corporate crying out together, that confession, saying, Lord, we have forgotten you. I have drifted after other gods and chased after them. I've even served them. And Lord, please forgive me and come be my deliverer. Save me. And what does he do every time? He comes and he forgives and he pro- proclaims that gospel. And he proclaims that gospel through a man he sins, a man whose strength is God, uh, not a man who stands in his own right, but the pastor who, who stands only by the sta- in the stead and by the command of God to, to remind us of our warrior, Christ, the one who is the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the savior of all of us, and who has brought us that peace that will have no, no ending. Pastor Tyrell Bramwell is the pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Bramwell, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Our Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory for us, and he is with us in this war, this war that we are engaged in right now with the powers of evil. Make no mistake about it, we do not live in neutral territory. But our Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory, and he delivers that victory to us through faith. And in that faith, he will deliver us on the last day to his eternal rest. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.